Welcome to a special edition of the One and O podcast hosted by Joe Cook and Brad Kellner and joined today by Paul Wadlington. One and O podcast is part of the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast channel. And today we will talk about one of the more popular sports that, among others, has returned to action in the wake of the coronavirus shutdown and mixed martial arts in UFC. In his expansive sports knowledge, Paul has a large chunk of his brain dedicated to the art of beating others' brains, so he'll explain what the beginner should watch for, some upcoming major events, and how to possibly make a little bit of money in the process. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Email us directly at everyonegetsatrophy at gmail.com with the number one. And, of course, our podcasts would not be possible without the following sponsors. Yeah, got to give some love to Audio Visual Consultations, avconsultations.com, the website, 512-255-8678, the phone number to call to get the home TV setup of your dreams. You've probably been spending a lot of time at home over the last couple of months. Maybe you're realizing that your TV setup isn't the way that you want it to be. Give Tom McKay and AV Consultations a call to get that TV setup you've always wanted. And we're also brought to you by Altstadt Brewery, Altstadt Beer. It is German beer made here, brewed in Central Texas, available wherever you shop for beer here in Central Texas. Also in the DFW Metroplex and in the Houston area as well. Make sure you pick up a six-pack next time you're at the grocery store. It's Altstadt Beer. No impurities, no regrets. So I'm pretty sure all three of us ended up watching, uh, it was a couple weeks ago, the UFC 249 card. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. That is correct. And uh, thank you guys for inviting me into your dojo. Yeah, I was about to say, <laughs> I wonder if, how this compares to some of the other ones you've seen across the South Pacific. Uh, we try to tidy up a little bit, but you know, we're, we're a little messy on this front as far as MMA, but of course that's why we have the Grandmaster here. So I guess right off the top, we won't really go to recap fight by fight because that's, you know, it's, it's a little bit in the past now, but overall big picture, why was two, UFC 249 so important? Was it the fact that it just happened? Was it the, the stacked card? Was it the fact that it appealed to people like me and gave them something live sports? What, what, at least for you, Paul, really stood out about the whole event? And why do you think that, and how can UFC continue to keep this momentum going for a sport that maybe not a lot of people know about? So all of the above. Uh, so, Joe, I think you were not alone in that. I think because of the nature of what's going on, the dearth of live sports, the fact that people are desperate for sporting content in general, right? We're, we've got people watching South Korean baseball. Uh, hmm. We've got people, uh, Brad, we'll have to talk about this later, but we've got people betting on Japanese bug fights, right? So uh, people just are looking for content. And the UFC, even though it has grown immensely, I mean, it is, it is now a, a pretty major sport for a, a lot of people, but it's not the NFL, right? It's not Major League Baseball. It's not the NBA, I think this was a great opportunity for live sports. And also it was a stacked card and it was an incredibly good card. Uh, I think even people who don't really tune in to watch mixed martial arts or haven't watched the UFC before, or have only seen it passively, they tuned in, they realized how entertaining, how provocative, how dramatic, how skillful this, this sport is. And I think it won over a lot of converts. I also think frankly, that there's a little dimension too, where, uh, I think people kind of appreciated the defiance of Dana White to make this go off 
And he basically said, look, we can do this safely. And, and they did. They tested. They did both the antibody test and the, the swab test. Anyone that tested positive, of course, was sent home and not allowed to fight. They did have one fighter test positive who was asymptomatic. He actually completed an entire training camp with COVID-19, uh, but he's a healthy guy, so didn't really even affect him, which is you know, the case for most people uh, who are in that demographic or that, that niche. But they sent him home. No big deal. They isolated the fighters in the hotel before the fight, and then they didn't have a crowd. And what was crazy about it, Joe and Brad, maybe I'll be curious to see if you agree, is what it actually highlighted was it put the focus on the fight over the event. And so the crowd noise, you didn't really realize how much it was concealing the sound of the strikes and the sound of the kick landing on someone's temple or someone landing a flush punch, what that really sounds like. Mm -hmm. And then you got to hear the cornermen yelling out strategy and tactics and actually you know, a little interesting subscript in that uh, whole drama of the UFC 249 that unfolded was a couple of fighters could hear the color commentators, Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier commenting, and they actually altered their tactics in fight based on comments that Rogan and Cormier were making because they could hear them. So I think it was actually kind of fascinating. So yeah, there was a desperation for live content. There was a desperation for sports. The event itself was fantastic, and I think the sport is fantastic, and I think it sells itself. There's something raw and something real about it that I think is, is sort of primally and viscerally appealing to, to human beings and men in particular. Paul, are you at all surprised by how well UFC 249 went? I mean, I don't want to say it went off scot-free, obviously, because you had a fighter test positive for coronavirus the day before the actual event, but the fact that they were still able to have every other fight and everything— kind of went pretty smoothly, according to most parts. Did that surprise you at all, that this was able to get done as well as it did? No, I, I wasn't that surprised. The, the sport actually lends itself pretty easily to pulling off an event once you make the decision to remove the crowds. And, you know, it was funny. There was intense criticism of the event before the event, and there was even a criticism after the event because Joe Rogan, uh, got in the ring, got in the octagon with the winning fighters and interviewed them. And he put his arm around them. And of course, the fighters are bleeding and they, you know, Joe shook their hands and things like that. And people are saying, that's not social distancing. Well, you have two people who both tested negative. Like, let's use our brains. Hmm. Let's not have this hysterical reaction, this default reaction of hysteria and finger pointing and, and finger wagging. And, you know, this is it's really a weird opportunity for scolds, right? This, this virus, it's really an opportunity for people who are naturally inclined to be the, the person in your HOA who's always filing a complaint, the person who uh, was the hall monitor in high school, right? It's that personality type that this appeals to. And so even if logic tells you that there was no risk, uh, people still tried to criticize it. And you know what? That criticism was sort of mocked and unmasked, at least I think among most people who can think. So, yeah, I'm not surprised that it went off well, and I think some more of them are going to go off well. And I think, in a way, the UFC is going to use this as an opportunity to advance and, and grow their platform. I agree. And, you know, after watching 249, there were a couple more, you know, free-to-watch events, or at least free with a subscription to ESPN Plus, those fight nights. And, you know, that got me tuned into that. And There's no way that I would have been doing that you know, on a Wednesday night, I probably would have been scrolling Netflix or watching for something else, playing video games, something like that. But, you know, just that event in general uh, got me interested enough to want to watch it again on Wednesday. And, of course, those fight nights are kind of a 
kind of a hold you over until you get to the big pay-per-views. But I will make one small disagreement about going off without a hitch. It did include Greg Hardy on the card. And uh, that's a a bridge that's a little too far for me to cross on that front. But every other part, it seemed like there was a little bit of everything as far as what the fights were. There were some close brawls. There were some close technical matches. We got a first-round 20-second KO. And then it ended with, with a technical clinic, I feel like. So what are some other... I guess, styles of fights that maybe we didn't see on this card that, you know, you you might see in in other events with other styles of fighting. So that's a good question. And before that, I do want to bring up another uh, Texas uh, O-centric football related uh, link in the UFC. So not only does Greg Hardy fight in the UFC, uh, Greg Hardy, who famously was abusive to what I believe a girlfriend Mm -hmm and culminated that abuse by throwing her on a pile of guns, which is uh, sort of the ultimate clincher uh, if you're looking for a domestic disturbance uh, write-up. That's, you know, yeah. abusing someone and then throwing them on your collection of guns. Is, at that, the end of is the that not legal in UFC or any mixed martial arts, Paul? Okay. And you're not allowed to bring guns and your firearms into the octagon. Okay. But, you know, hey, if it's true martial arts, martial means war, you know, that should be all it should be all no holds barred. Right. But uh, the other relation to football, and this is a specific Texas Longhorn relation. If you guys can remember the name of the linebacker who got Gil- uh, Garrett Gilbert for the safety in the national title game against Alabama. Do you remember the outside linebacker who came on an unblocked blitz and got Garrett Gilbert and caused the fumble? That wasn't the safety. It was caused the fumble, a backside fumble. He was unblocked. You guys have any idea who that guy was or remember his name? I want to say Ruben something, but I don't know if that's right. No, you might be thinking of Ruben Foster because we brought up abuse. Uh, But Eric Anders was his name. And he is now a UFC fighter as well. And he recently just fought and lost. Uh, But there's a lot of uh, NFL guys or college football guys who couldn't quite make it to NFL who are trying to transition to mixed martial arts with eh, mixed results. But back to to your question, in terms of style, so that's a really interesting question, Joe. There are dominant styles for each fighter now. But the reason it's now called mixed martial arts is because in the early evolution of this fighting uh, which really happened in 1993, which was the first UFC. And it was no holds barred. It was the Wild West. It was crazy. It was a promotion put on by a guy named Horian Gracie, who is a member of a very famous fighting family, the Gracies from Brazil, who invented an entire form of martial arts that's one of the most effective and, and one of the most prominent martial arts in the world. Uh, and then he partnered with a guy named Art Davey, who used to run tough man contests. And if you guys remember, I don't know if you guys remember those, but that was a, a big thing back in the 90s. And, and you would have these tough man contests in, in the local city coliseum. And basically anyone could sign up and fight. That's how Butterbean got famous, if you guys know who Butterbean mm-hmm. is. So oh, these, these two guys partnered. They put on this pay-per-view, no holds barred. You know, someone's going to die. Let's pit all the martial arts against each other. And that they did. And so all the different martial arts styles sort of came out because people then were, were specifists. You didn't generalize in martial arts. You had your little school. I'm a Thai boxer. I'm a wrestler. I'm a boxer. I'm a karate guy. I'm a kung fu guy. And they all came together. And what we realized very quickly of what was effective and what was bullshit. 
And there was quite a bunch of bullshit in traditional martial arts and a lot of nonsense. And that got rooted out pretty quickly. And what they realized was what was effective was Brazilian, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is effectively submission wrestling. Wrestling, which a lot of people don't think of as a martial art, but of course it's a martial art. Boxing and Thai boxing. And then there's little pieces here and there. Um, but those are the things that rose to prominence. And so even today, if your background is you're an Olympic-level wrestler, as, as some of the guys and the champions are in the UFC, you also have to learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You have to learn submission. You have to learn stand-up. Because if you don't, if you don't know how to box and tie box and submit and also wrestle, uh, you will just get exposed. And that is how this, this sport has evolved. The sport has evolved more in 25 years than football evolved in 100 years, from the days of Red Grange to the New England Patriots with Tom Brady. And in fact, if the current UFC average fighter went back in time to 1993, I'm talking about just a journeyman fighter, they would be a dominant fighter and the champion of the UFC. Hmm. So when you say, what styles did we miss? Well, you're always going to see a dominant style from a fighter. You know, usually a fighter will have a dominant strength. But now all fighters can do all things. Because if they can't, they'll get exposed and, and they'll get pummeled. So one, I don't know if you do remember one match, though, that was particularly interesting is there was a guy named Bryce Hall, I believe, from Arkansas, who wrestled a Brazilian guy. And it was strictly on the ground. It was all Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But it was an incredibly exciting match because he kept trying holds and he really showed how exciting it can be if you really know how to submission fight. Um, and that was an interesting example of kind of a pure Brazilian jiu-jitsu match that was pretty entertaining. And, and then you also you saw some matches like the Tony Ferguson-Justin Justin Gagey fight, which, were, which is almost exclusively fought on the feet. Now, it was almost exclusively fought on the feet, despite the fact that Justin Gagey was a former All-American college wrestler, and Tony Ferguson is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, very high level. So uh, it just happened that way because neither guy wanted to take each other down, and it turned out Tony Ferguson couldn't take Justin Gagey down. So... You know, things will, will eventuate that way, but you're not really missing out on styles anymore, and there's no longer a dominant style. It used to always be, what's better, wrestling or striking? What's better, Thai boxing or judo? No one does that exclusively anymore. Everybody has to train in every modality. Paul, I want to focus on that fight you just talked about, the Ferguson Gaethje event, which was the main event of UFC 249 a couple of weeks ago. Really just want to get into the lightweight class as a whole. I mean, the Ferguson-Habib fight had been talked about for months, and I think it had been canceled four or five times, and it actually was supposed to happen last weekend, but Habib couldn't get to Florida where the event was taking place, so it got postponed again, and now Gaethje knocked off Ferguson, so maybe we'll never get that fight between Ferguson and Habib, but your thoughts on what's next for Gaethje and also Conor McGregor, who is has to be the most na like noteworthy, most famous personality in all of the UFC. I know the diehard UFC fans will probably scoff at that a little bit, but in terms of crossing over to mainstream culture, everybody knows who Conor McGregor is. He's still a part of this class as well. Uh, what's next for Conor McGregor, and really what's next for this lightweight class that uh, a lot of people have been talking about since last weekend? So Khabib Nurmagomedov is the champion that you mentioned. He is a Dagestani guy who... Uh, predominantly is a wrestler and submission guy. Not as good as stand-up, but he's such a dominant wrestler that no one can really stand with him. And Justin Gagey 
is the guy who everyone saw win that incredible victory over Tony Ferguson, who had won 12 fights in a row. I mean, Tony Ferguson is an extraordinary fighter. And then Conor McGregor, as you said correctly, is the biggest name and the biggest draw and the biggest money draw. And so the UFC is part pure sport and pure competition, but it's also part business, right? Just like boxing. And so we may all get sick of Floyd Mayweather Jr. and his antics, but as long as he's selling in the pay-per-views, you're going to see Floyd Mayweather Jr. featured, right? And so Conor McGregor is guaranteed pay-per-view numbers, guaranteed box office, huge contingents from Ireland travel to see him. The average fan loves to see him because he's such a, uh, such a trash talker. And he's very entertaining. You know, someone is going to, someone's going to get knocked out in one of his fights more often than not. And so he is going to fight Justin Gagey. That is the obvious fight that's looming and that will be an incredible fight because it's going to happen on the feet. Even though Gagey is the vastly superior wrestler, Gagey likes to strike and he likes to get in people's face and wear them down. And as he says, he's the most violent man in the most violent sport. And then Conor McGregor is a master of distance control. He's a master of creating space and then closing space when he wants to, but then denying you of space when you want to. And if, you know, he's really good at that, really good at footwork, and he has, he has, a, great, uh, he has a great punch. He can, he, can, he, can, he can bang. And so that is the fight, and if that fight happens, you're going to get a million, million and a half pay-per-views. And uh, with all the backlog of fights, because the UFC wasn't going on for a while, you'll have a stacked card. And, you know, they may still have Khabib try to fight Tony Ferguson, or they may have Khabib fight the winner of Gagey, Conor McGregor. Uh, or you could have them skip that, and have Khabib fight Justin Gagey, and Tony Ferguson fights Conor McGregor. There's a lot of different permutations. That lightweight class in general is absolutely stacked. The entire top 10 is loaded with very charismatic, very good fighters. Uh, and then, you know, once you start to play that round-robin tournament with that talent level, it's really like the classic 1980s boxing of Hagler, Hearns, Leonard, Duran, where they're just sort of all fighting each other continuously in a round robin. And every single fight, every single combination is incredibly entertaining. You, you mentioned something that I think I, I don't understand completely is that the, the ranking system, the top 10, and I, I'm looking at it right now, at least that uh, for the lightweight division, it goes five Hooker, four McGregor, three Poirier, two Ferguson, one Gaethje with, Khabib is the champion what quickly is that internal is that made by how does that ranking process kind of work so that ranking process is obviously determined by reality which is these guys all fight each other and there's results but it's almost like the AP poll in that the UFC uses weighted rankings of different MMA writers and the problem with MMA writers is they span tremendously just like sports writers and other sports of their actual knowledge of the sport so you can get some people elevated who don't deserve to be there sometimes, but that won't last long because the thing about the MMA and the UFC world is you've got to fight someone eventually. If you get ranked high, you can't hide in your Mountain West schedule. You can't hide in your ACC schedule, right? Eventually, you've got to go to the playoffs and you've got to play Alabama and Clemson and, and Ohio State. And so... You know, if you're if you're inflated, you won't stay inflated for long. And that that is the beauty of that system. The downside of that system is sometimes people can get elevated that don't necessarily belong. But the beauty of the UFC and the beauty of MMA is it is reality based in every sense, meaning you can 
watch all the Steven Seagal movies you want. You can watch Bruce Lee and have all these fantasies about what actually works in a fight. But then there's the reality of what a fight really is. And what the UFC more than anything introduced was the reality of what a fight really is and what's effective and what's ineffective. So that's the kind of thing that I've always thought was interesting. And I guess it appeals partly to the little kid in everyone who used to sit around and wonder, you know, who would win in a fight, Muhammad Ali or, or Bruce Lee, or who would win in a fight, an Olympic wrestler or a karate master. Well, now we have the answer. Go ahead, Joe. Brad, go ahead. I was going to Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I got a good one then. Um, so what, what I said was either up... so stupid or so incredible that it made you speechless. <laughs> I'm just I'm just making yes. sure I'm doing my research on the Japanese bug fights. You know, there's some big ones coming up this uh, this oh. weekend. I've got to be ready for those. Brad, listen, brother, do not underestimate beetles. Everyone focuses on scorpions and tarantulas and murder hornets. Give me a good old fashioned rhinoceros beetle any day of the week. Those things kick ass. Oh shit! You've done your research on this, huh? If we're talking groups, I still may take ants, but we'll go back to human combat real quick. (laughs) It's something that you mentioned, and I got to get a little bit of a pro wrestling uh, talk in here, in that over the past, you know, I think five, a little bit more than five years, the women's aspect in the WWE has taken off. And about 10 years ago, it was pure crap. Um, I don't know if it's the same way for UFC, but looking at the card for UFC 250, thinking back to, you know, Ronda Rousey, stuff like that, it seems like, you know, women's UFC is may, may not be as popular as the men right now, but it's still a, a significant part that a lot of people in a wide audience still tune into. So what has helped that take off? Is it similar to WWE and that the quality has just gotten better? Or is it, hey, this is, you know, still fighting. It's, you know, just of a different gender at this point. It's fighting of a different gender. The skill level and quality of the women at the top is extremely high. And what's fascinating about it is when you watch a fighter like Amanda Nunes, who's the champion uh, who destroyed Ronda Rousey famously, mm-hmm. uh, when, when you watch Claudia Gadeja, you know, all these different women at the, the top of the game, they're impressive and, and not impressive for a girl, right? You know, you sort of add that in parentheses. No, they're impressive. And so just 10 years ago, when when women would fight in the UFC, I'd kind of roll my eyes and be like, all right, well, here's my opportunity for a bathroom break. Right. And you don't do that anymore. And they're, they're very impressive, very skilled. And it's simply a matter of numbers, as it is with any sport. In the early days of the UFC with women, particularly the height of the Ronda Rousey uh, pipe, very few women were doing this. And because of that, you had an inflated sense of the quality of the people at the top. But as mixed martial arts and fighting has expanded among women, there's now hundreds of thousands, if not millions of women who now treat this pretty seriously, you're getting just very high levels of talent. And a lot of those women are either very impressive in terms of their skills or, or power or you know, technique, or a lot of them are also pretty attractive. And that's also a selling point, right? There is a, nope. there is a WWE aspect into this. And it's, you got to sell it. You got to sell a story. You got to sell a narrative. And that's no different than, than, than boxing, right? That's no different than any other sport like that. Where you've got to create a story and a groundswell of, of interest. And I think you just had a, a natural native 
improvement in skill level and quality. I can't speak to the WWE. I don't really pay attention to that as much. Uh, but my understanding is that basically the women in the WWE now are just charismatic and a lot more athletic. And so it just is a better product. Paul, it, it absolutely is. <laughs> Paul, what's your stance on Ronda Rousey? Because, I mean, even though she's been out of the game for a couple of years, I still feel like she's the most well-known women UFC fighter in history. You know, I always kind of scoff at her just because she was dominant for a while, but as the popularity of women's mixed martial arts grew and expanded, there were obviously fighters who were better than her, and she finally lost and lost a couple of times. But, you know, like I, I always view her in a different light or sort of a negative light because she was so dominant for a while, then she lost one time. And I know she got her ass kicked, but she left the sport for like a couple of years and then came back and fought one more time and then lost again. Like, do real fans of UFC kind of view Ronda Rousey in a negative way because of the way she sort of left the sport as soon as she lost the first couple of times? I don't know. I, I, don't, I can't speak to that because the UFC fan base has a, a variance of knowledge, just like any other sport. And, but one thing that does characterize a, a fair portion of the UFC fan base that's maybe different than the NFL or Major League Baseball or whatever is a lot of the people, I won't say a lot, but a sizable minority of people have either done boxing or judo or Brazilian jiu-jitsu or done some kind of martial art. And so they are able to analyze some things at a different level, maybe than the casual fan of Major League Baseball, even though you've got the seam heads and the stat heads and all those guys. It's still a minority, right? Mm -hmm. And so Ronda Rousey's perception broadly was one of popularity because she was this dominant force. And then I think more knowledgeable people were skeptical, and I was always skeptical. She was a big fish in a small pond. And when that pond expanded to a mid-sized lake, she started getting her ass kicked hmm. and her psychology couldn't handle it. And she made an exit to, to movies and to wrestling, which, you know, is her right. And uh, she's not obligated to try to improve her game and, and come back. But the fact is she was a great example of a very narrow uh, type of fighter who had a very strong judo background, which was very useful, uh, particularly against women fighters in that skill level at that time period. And also uh, was a good straight boxer, just straight, sort of straight ahead boxer. She could, you know, throw a good hook. She could throw a good straight right. But then when she started to encounter women with real skill level, real boxing ability, she got, you know, destroyed. And one of my great regrets is as skeptical as I was about Ronda Rousey, I had wished I'd put money on that Holly Holm fight. Mm. She was the woman that first unmasked Ronda Rousey yep. and, and, and showed footwork. And, you know, there's the famous ronda rousey whiffing on a punch when holly Holm ducks it and pops up behind her and then head kicks her uh you know i those odds brad were something like 30 to 1 oh man and in a fight it should never be 30 to 1 because anything can happen in a fight especially mma so, and i really regret not throwing down like 500 bucks or a grand on that so is that because uh, i know joe was going to ask you about this but i'm going to steal the question from him is that sort of gambling advice that you have for the mma i mean you know i'm all about betting on anything korean baseball taiwanese baseball hell i'll bet on little league baseball i'll go to a local park here in austin and just uh and put money down on some of these kids playing i get some weird looks but you know it's got to be done legal? i don't know if it's legal I, I, you know what, what what's illegal is the fact that brad will 
bribe those kids with like snow cones and Hershey bars to throw the game or do some black socks activity. And that's, that's the regrettable part of this, Brad. You don't have any evidence the of that. little black socks. There's, there's no evidence of that. <laughs> uh, little tiny baby socks. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean like advice, you know, for, for the casual guys who are like, eh, normally this time of year you'd be betting on the NBA playoffs or the Stanley Cup playoffs or obviously regular season baseball we don't have any of those, and we won't have those for at least the foreseeable future. In terms of gambling advice for a guy who doesn't want to study all the fighters and all of the techniques and all of the matchups, like, are there certain things that you look for, whether it's odds? I mean, you talked about seeing something like 30-1. to 1. You always jump on the huge underdog there. Like, what are sort of tendencies that you may have that could serve as advice for someone who's trying to put some money down on these fights? I've got a couple of observations, and there's good news, bad news to this, Brad and Joe. So here's the bad news. Just 10 to 15 years ago, you could make real money off of MMA and the UFC if you understood it, and I did. It's really the only sport I've ever consistently made some money on, and it was because Vegas, who I think you guys would agree, is really good at their job, right? Oh, yeah. They're more often than not, when you see a handicap, you're like, damn it, that's perfect, hmm. right? And you're hoping for the public to do something stupid to the line, right, to distort it. But what they couldn't do was properly handicap fights because the people that handicapped were a group of guys, you know, the Sharps, the casino guys that are experts at this. They didn't have any basis or background in, mar- in martial arts. They didn't have any background in the UFC. They didn't really understand it. It was just a generational difference. And they could not properly assess lines. And they didn't understand that Anderson Silva, this Brazilian no one's ever heard of from Pride, a Japanese fighting organization coming to the UFC, that was a real big deal. And if you had Pride fights and you'd watched Pride as I had, I understood Anderson Silva was about to go through that division like, like crap through a goose. But all they hear is this unnamed Brazilian guy from Japan. And how can they beat a UFC guy? And so there was a real opportunity to make money in those days. That has been addressed. Vegas is much more sophisticated. But they still fall prey to narrative. And that happens in boxing as well. And that happened most recently in UFC 249. Justin Gagey was almost a two-to-one underdog to Tony Ferguson. And when you have a very good fighter fighting a very good fighter, it should never be two-to-one, particularly in mixed martial arts, because even more than boxing, there is the lucky punch aspect of, of MMA, but there's actually just more ways to lose. The, the inferior or equal fighter can beat the other fighter just because, just, 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 just how it is, how it went that day. And they could fight 10 times, and the better fighter might win six. But it's almost more like baseball than football, in that an amazing baseball team will still lose two out of 10 to a pretty sorry baseball team, right? In, in football, Alabama doesn't lose two out of 10 to Louisiana Monroe. And the UFC is more like baseball in that sense than Alabama. Now, there's a few exceptions. There's the John Joneses. There's the Khabib Nurmagomedovs. There's those guys. But you'll recognize pretty quickly that they're the special cases. The more ordinary thing is the Tony Ferguson-Justin Gagey situation. And if you see two to one against comparably matched fighters, you've got to jump on the underdog no matter what the narrative is. 
Do you think that's something that's more better driven than actually, uh, you know, the, 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 the odds makers making it, that's, that's something more reactive to the market than maybe the actual fight there from what it sounds like. It could be. Yeah. And I think also when the betting public, the big dumb betting public gets involved, because obviously UFC 249 was sort of the only game in town, I think betting might've gotten distorted. And so the names or the more recent reputation got inflated uh, at the expense of the guy who they missed the fact that Justin Gagey was improving and had changed his style. And yes, he's the most violent guy in the most violent sport, but he actually was much more defensive. He doesn't just trade punches and see what happens anymore. He's much more scientific and much more deliberative in his attacks and his approach. And when you see that starting to happen and you realize that Tony Ferguson could not take him down, even if he wanted to, he can't get him on the ground then that fight is going to happen where Justin Gagey wants that fight to happen. That's the other thing to look for in betting. Very simple question. If a guy is a great striker or the superior striker to the person he's fighting and also can't be taken down, that guy has a huge advantage because it's almost like a Chuck Liddell in his heyday. He was a, people don't realize he was a college wrestler. He was a Juco wrestler. Now, he wasn't amazing on the ground, but what he was very good at was not getting taken down. And so what that meant is every fight became a stand-up fight. And if you couldn't hang with his stand-up, he was going to knock you out. And so that's an important to di- dynamic to always look at at the most basic level. Can the guy who's the better striker get taken down? In the case of Conor McGregor, the answer is yes. And that's what makes handicapping his fight so difficult. Because if it stays standing, Conor McGregor is going to do work. If it goes down to the ground, Conor's going to be in trouble. You charge for your picks, Paul? I feel like you could uh, create a business, a little side hustle, selling these picks to some people out there. Well, here's the danger of gambling, as you guys well know. You can run on a little streak and start to think you're the smartest guy in the room. Hmm. And then you realize that you were just on a streak, and it was probably some luck. And... Uh, you can lose your ass real fast. So uh, I'm I always unfamiliar with these terms. <laughs> <laughs> I always try to be humble in my ability to assess fights and, and betting because, man, MMA will humble you in what you thought was obvious, and then all of a sudden you, oh, this guy has spent the last six months working on this. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, my guy just got knocked out. That's not good. <laughs> so it, that potential exists. I have just one more question. Uh, you basically, I had a big six list that I uh, wanted to get touched on, and you basically hit them all. But one, one last question, and potentially the most, infor- most important, what's your strategy uh, if you were to show up on the hypothetical fight island that UFC was thinking about putting together? <laughs> what's my strategy for what exactly? Uh, I mean, let's, it's, it's like Donkey Kong. You got to go all the way to the top. How are you, how are you trying to get through uh, a round of people to prove that you're the best on the, the, the idea that people had of fight Island, not necessarily the secluded place in the middle of the Caribbean that UFC was going to use as a base of operations, but the, the kind of popular meme version of fight Island where people just thought UFC guys were going to show up and start doing it with each other. <laughs> You know, what, oh, what's, I, I, what's, what's, what's your strategy there in this battle royal free-for-all <laughs> if it were to happen? I, I think it's the same strategy as a WWE battle royale, which is you want to be the cowardly heel, right? You want to try not to engage anyone 
let all the big guys try to knock each other out, and then you, you, you randomly attack people from behind when it presents itself and choke them out and then run away and then wait for your next opportunity. That's, that's probably the wisest approach in that kind of scenario because uh, even the lowest trained level of UFC fighter uh, would destroy any normal untrained person so fast it would shock you. It would be, it would be alarming to you what they could do to you at any time, any time they felt like it. And you can confirm this very quickly if you ever want to go into a Brazilian jiu-jitsu you know, gym and roll with people or even just go into a regular boxing gym and spar with a guy who's a middling pro or a journeyman, you would be shocked <laughs> at, at your inability to even land a punch on them. And they can kind of do whatever they want. It's kind of sad and, and shocking. How fast are we talking? Like, how long would I last in the octagon with one of these guys? Like, the lowest level of UFC fighter. Uh, if you got in the octagon and ran... <laughs> like immediately just ran in circles, like one of the three stooges, like making the boop, 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 boop sound, right? They, it would take them about eight or 10 seconds to catch you. And then they would take you down and choke you out. And so, yeah, I'd say 10 seconds. But then if you actually were dumb enough to come forward, three seconds, four seconds, six seconds, um, the, it, would, it would be like the image in my head. I'm taking the over on myself. You're taking the, the over, huh? That I keep thinking of uh, when I hear this is if you remember Jack, I think it's either an old Jackass TV show scene where uh, Johnny Knoxville and the aforementioned Butterbean just start duking it out in a department store. And Johnny Knoxville gets one punch in on Butterbean, and it's because Butterbean told him to hit him in the face, and it did not last much longer than that. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, you know, not to insult the great Butterbean, uh, he would not last very long in a UFC octagon either. Uh, but yeah, it's funny. The, the original story for the octagon, even as the venue where this now takes place, it's sort of iconic is the original UFC was started by Art Davey and Horian Gracie. And they weren't sure, like, should they do it in a boxing ring? Should they do it? You know, and they, they brought in John Milius, who was a very famous Hollywood producer of that time. He was responsible for Conan the Barbarian, among other uh, cinematic triumphs. And John Milius put in some money to invest in the UFC, and he said, but I have two requirements. The octagon has to have a moat around it full of alligators, and the fence has to be electrified. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, man. That's... And uh, naturally, like I don't think any sporting commissions would have... No sporting commissions would approve that, so they had to throw out the alligators and the electricity. Oh, that is great. Well, Paul, this has been fun, man. Last question from me. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, the next scheduled UFC event is coming up on June 6th, which is uh, a week from Saturday, so the weekend after Memorial Day. Uh, can you tell us about UFC 250 a little bit, some of the fights that are on the card, and uh, some things for the casuals to watch for if they'll be uh, tuning in in a couple of weeks? Yeah, I actually think there's a fight night in between there, uh, May oh, nice. 30th. Yeah, so I think that's a free fight night, and sometimes those free fight nights are either on ESPN Plus, as Joe mentioned, or they'll just be on regular ESPN, so look for it. Tyron Woodley, Woodley is the headliner for that, and Tyron Woodley is a very good fighter, uh, probably on the downslope of his career, but uh, was a champion for a long time, very entertaining. Um, 
then there's a, a woman named Mackenzie Dern fighting who is a freaking hottie. She's a smoke show and she's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert and uh, she's trying to translate into MMA. So she might be worth your time. UFC 250, if it goes off, the headliner actually is the aforementioned Amanda Nunes. She is the women's champion. She's fighting a woman named Felicia Spencer. And Amanda Nunes is a very good Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, but she's best at boxing and stand-up. So you're going to see a, a, a up stand-up slugfest. And Amanda has power. I mean, she, she can throw. She can bang. Uh, so she'll be entertaining. Uh, I'm not sure about the rest of the card, honestly. Um, there's no big headliners that I think people would recognize. So I'm not sure. I think they're going to add more people to UFC 250, in my opinion. I think they're going to add more guys to that, possibly. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not super familiar with the card beyond Amanda Nunes as the headliner. So I probably need to go research that myself. Paul, thank you so much for uh, that. That does it for me, Brad. You said that was your last one. I, I, I can't think of anything else. And I feel like this was a uh, excellent four dummy episode with me being the dummy. And I, I know that I think anybody else who's getting into this a little bit and liked what they saw and maybe wants to learn a little bit more about it will definitely know a little bit more about it and hopefully maybe have the inspiration to drop that, you know, 60 bucks on a, uh, UFC 250. I think I I might be leaning that direction as well. So I I appreciate it so much. And you put it into football terms with the Louisiana Monroe and Alabama and stuff like that. And that, of course, with who listens to us makes it a lot easier for me and everybody else. So thank you so much for that. I cannot thank you enough. Yeah. Hey, my pleasure. And look, this this has been with us in various forms since the dawn of, of recorded history. I mean, the Greeks had mixed martial arts. It was called pancration, and it was part of the Olympics, the original Olympics. Hmm. And, uh, you know, in various forms, this sort of thing has always existed. And it's primal, and it's visceral, and they do their best to make it safe. But I think that sense of one-on-one, who's better, uh, mano a mano, that's a powerful thing in sport. And uh, I think that's its appeal. And the more you watch and the more you get educated on the skill level and the courage and, and the physical prowess of these fighters, the more you get pulled into it and you realize that it's, it's a really damn good sport and, and a hell of a lot of fun to watch. No doubt. Paul, we appreciate the time, man. Next time we'll, uh, we'll talk about Cricket Super League. So uh, be ready for that, okay? Cricket Super League in the bug fight sense or the gentleman, uh, English gentleman bowling and taking three days to finish a match? Ah, a little double entendre. Good catch right there. I'm going with those Japanese murder hornets. Are those uh, a part yeah, of those right. bug fights? I mean, I feel like they have to be the heavy favorites whenever they uh, go up in, in the ring or the octagon or wherever the hell those things fight. Brad Kellner, you are going to be shocked at the most dominant insects in fighting. I already gave you a hint. I need you to follow up on that and educate yourself, but... The tarantulas, the scorpions, all these different murder hornets, all these uh, insects that get all the hype, they cannot stand before the mighty beetle. That's all I can tell you. The damn beetle. Look at Brad falling victim to narrative again, like, like, you know, like so many UFC <laughs> gamblers you were talking about. That's it. Unreal. All right, Paul, appreciate the time, man. Anytime, fellas. Love the 1-0 podcast. Keep it up. All right, there he goes, Paul Wadlington. Check him out, the Everyone Gets a Trophy podcast with Kevin Dunn. They've already dropped an episode this week as well. Good call on that, Joe. That was your idea, man. That was uh, a lot of fun. I learned a lot. 
I've been watching a lot more UFC over the last two and a half weeks since UFC 249 took place. I found myself enjoying it. I think I'm going to be watching UFC after all this is over. Number one, I enjoy it. I find myself enjoying it. Of course, the gambling element helps out with that too. But also, I'm always going to respect Dana White and the UFC for putting on events, just giving us some sort of live sports content during this time in which we haven't had any for the last couple of months. So I think I'm all in on the UFC, and uh, it was nice to learn a little bit more, and good to have Paul as a resource anytime I have any questions about bets to make. Absolutely. Like I mentioned, a significant chunk of his brain is about knowledgeable about beating in other brains when it comes down to it pretty simply. And, yeah, I was – before this, I was always a little bit more into boxing. I – I didn't understand UFC. Uh, boxing, it's really straightforward. You either punch the guy with your right hand in the face, punch the guy with your right hand in the body, or punch the guy in the left hand in the face, or punch the left hand in the body. Hmm. And I, I admired that simplicity of it, and I could still kind of see the strategy and you know where you move your feet, where you move your body, that type of thing. And I couldn't see that with, with UFC. I guess that was my my barrier to entry for, for getting into that sport. And so now I feel like I'm, and of course watching more and more of it will, will open more doors up to me, but yeah, I feel like I have a a much better grasp of what's going on inside the octagon now than, than before. I'm with you a hundred percent. All right. Anything else you want to add before we wrap up this episode? I think that's a, a good episode right there. And hopefully we are, talking a little bit more and more football in the coming weeks no doubt about that all right that's going to do it for this week's edition of the one and O podcast appreciate paul wadlington for his time and of course be sure to check out their podcast like rate and subscribe to this podcast and the everyone gets a trophy podcast as well also be on the lookout for some new additions to the everyone gets a trophy podcast channel we're excited about those y'all will find out in the coming days. For Joe Cook, I am BK Brad Kellner. Thanks again to our sponsors, AV Consultations and Altstat Beer. Be sure to follow Joe on Twitter at josephcook89. I am at Brad Kellner. We appreciate all of your time. Thank you for tuning in. Hope everyone is staying safe and healthy out there. And until next time, y'all have a good one and hook them.